You're listening to the Myanmar Elections Briefing. Today is Sunday, the 1st of November, one week away from the Myanmar elections due to take place on the 8th of November. This is our second episode of a three-part podcast series where we take you through the things you need to know in the lead up to the Myanmar elections. My name is Wei Crystal Kine. And I'm Bernard Min. And we are your hosts for this podcast. In today's podcast, we'll be talking about peace and reconciliation in Myanmar in the context of the decades of ethnic conflict in our country. To start, we'll be going over a brief history of the ethnic politics in Myanmar and discuss the ethnocentric narrative of identity and how this has formed and become a main root cause of conflict. We will then have a special guest speaker to take us through the peace and reconciliation efforts of the Myanmar government over the last decade. Our special guest speaker features Gunei who is a career diplomat and has previously worked with the National Reconciliation and Peace Center in Yangon, Myanmar. To end, Myat Myanmar will be honing in on the challenges in Myanmar's peace and reconciliation process. Myat Myanmar is pretty much the brain behind much of the research we do for this podcast series and has previously worked in a research capacity for organizations including UNESCO and the Institute of Democracy and Electoral Assistance in Myanmar. It's important to note that the opinions expressed in this podcast are of the speakers alone and that they do not represent or reflect the opinions or views of any organization that our speakers may be affiliated with. All right. And with that, let's get into this week's podcast on peace and reconciliation and the things you need to know in the lead up to the Myanmar elections. Ethnic conflict has been a major challenge all throughout Myanmar's post-independence history ever since 1948. It has been termed by many as the longest-running current civil conflict in the world, spanning over a period of seven decades. The dynamic of conflict in Myanmar has many layers, and it's quite complex. And of course, there are various angles and narratives that we could take to analyze and portray this complexity when discussing the state of Myanmar's ethnic conflict. Yeah, Crystal, I mean, I almost feel like discussing this as a segment within a 25-minute podcast doesn't really do justice in explaining Myanmar's ethnic conflict, but it's an important piece and arguably the most important piece of the many things that you need to know in the lead up to the Myanmar elections. We hope this summary provides an overview, um, but we do caveat that in summarizing Myanmar's history of conflict, we do so at the risk of missing many pieces of the puzzle of complexity that is the state of Myanmar's ethnic conflicts. So we would encourage our listeners to not stop here. There are so many other resources out there that discuss the complexities of Myanmar's ethnic conflict, and they provide a comprehensive view for you to piece together those many layers of complexities. We'll be putting the names of these authors in the descriptions for you to look up and research in your own time. So, Bernard, can you give us an overview of the issues being fought for by ethnic minority groups in Myanmar? Yeah, sure. Um, it's important to note that the issues being fought for by ethnic minorities is not uniform. Remember, our country has more than 135 formally recognized ethnic groups and something like 40 or more different ethnic armed organizations. The issues being fought for range from having an independent state to self-rule to limited autonomy, uh, equal rights and fair share of the income from the natural resources of their own state. Right. And to add on to that, I mean, of course, there are other issues and demands such as peace and development of their respective areas, um, as well as, you know, protection and preservation of their own ethnic religion, culture and languages. 
adding to the varied issues being fought for across the ethnic groups, um, what ethnic minority groups are fighting for hasn't been static or rigid either. There's certainly been an evolution of issues being fought for over time. So in this summary, we will take you through uh, the discussion around ethnocentric narrative of identity, how it's come to be and how it has influenced policies throughout Myanmar's history, which has led to the country's long history of ethnic conflict. As we get into it, it's very important to first off address the usage of the terminology between Myanmar and Burma. I think a lot of us get asked this question by many people. Do we address your country as Burma or Myanmar? Do we address your people as Burmese or Myanmarese? There are three main dimensions to the terms in this. Uh, one is colonial affiliation, two is military affiliation, and three is ethnic centricity. We used to be called actually Myanmar-ji uh, in, in our own in Myanmar language. Yeah, or myanmar Nangan, which translates to the country of Myanmar. And this was what we called ourselves since before British colonization. Uh, when the British took over, they renamed the country to Burma. And likely they named the country Burma from the colloquial term Bamabi because it was easier to pronounce than the non-colloquial term Myanmar. So there's a fair bit of colonial undertones to the term Burma. And in, the, in our efforts to fight against the British and be anti-colonial, uh, in 1989, the military government changed the name back to Myanmar. But the fact that it was the military who changed the name caused some tensions to the term Burma. Some people say it's all, if you use the word Myanmar, it's almost saying that you're legitimizing what the military named the country. Now, there's also the ethnic dimension of the term Burma versus Myanmar. As previously mentioned, the term Burma derives from the majority ethnic group, the Burma people. Oftentimes, when people ask where you're from, we say we are Burmese. But when, when that happens, it's also essentially excluding all the ethnic groups who are not Burmese, who might be Shan or Kachin or Gayan. And I think that's a lot of the confusion that goes into the terminology. And Crystal, to be like completely candid with you, I, I really did not know about the nuances of the terminology growing up, especially the ethnic nuances. Um, I think like for me being ignorant, I just thought everyone from Myanmar was called Burmese, um, which as you say, can ignore so many of the ethnic uh, differences or the different ethnicities of the country. I also first was like, oh yeah, like where are you from? Of course I'm Burmese. But if Ashan actually goes abroad and someone asks them, oh, where are you from? The first thing they'll say is, oh, I'm from Shan. Like they're not going to say I'm from, I'm not. They're not going to say I'm Burmese. They're not going to say I'm from Myanmar. They, the first and foremost, the identity is Shan State, you know? So it's like a very like, um, so now I'm like, oh, I don't even want to say I'm Burmese. Mm. So now I'm like, okay, should we then use the word Myanmarese? Like, would that be more of a blanket statement uh, to cover everyone in the country? Um, so if you actually look at senior political figures that have visited the country, they actually use Burma and Myanmar interchangeably for that reason. So, for example, when President Obama visited Myanmar, he would use Burma in one sentence and then in the next sentence switch to Myanmar and then go back and back and forth because of this very um, confusing nature of, of the terminology. So there is that sort of the name of the country versus the actual 
name of the ethnic groups. I think that can get very confusing for the for the listener. Yeah, and we hope we didn't confuse our listeners even more, but instead explain the nuances between the term Myanmar and Burma across the dimensions of colonial affiliation, military affiliation, and ethnic centricity. So yeah, with that out of the way, let's get back to the ethnocentric narrative of identity in Myanmar and where that's come about in Myanmar's history. Myanmar, within its geographic boundaries, has always been home to many different groups of people belonging to different tribes. However, many historians have argued that the divisions in ethnicity became much more pronounced under British colonialism due to the racial consciousness that was cultivated by the British. So during the era of British colonialism, um, there was this phenomena of the British categorizing the local people of Myanmar by race and ethnicity. So some historians have discussed how there was almost a divide and conquer mentality by the British, where the British colonizers leveraged racial and ethnic differences among the people of Myanmar to quell the risk of a united rebellion. One way they did this was by excluding ethnic Bama people from serving in military and administrative roles, uh, and instead favoring ethnic minorities and Indians from British India to serve as soldiers and government civil servants, almost pitting the ethnic Bama people against the ethnic minorities. So this apparent cultivation of racial and ethnopolitics has been present since before Myanmar's independence. But there was a vision for unity, despite the heterogeneity of ethnic races in Myanmar, was it there, Crystal? Correct. And, you know, in fact, in and around the time of Myanmar's independence, there was a vision for a united Burma. And I think we touched upon this very briefly in the first podcast. Uh, One country where there was unity amongst the many various ethnic races of of the country. And this was seen through the Benglong Conference, led by Bojang San and many leaders from various ethnic minority groups. I mean, of course, as, as we all know, the Benlong Conference wasn't perfect, uh, but it was certainly a, a vehicle to move forward this discussion around multicultural and secular Myanmar, which essentially recognized the interests of ethnic minorities and wanted unity as a whole country. And of course, yes, we are a very diverse and heterogeneous group of people, um, but we can be united as a nation, and that was really the goal there. Of course, this sadly never materialized because Bojang's son, along with his cabinet and many leaders at the time, were assassinated before this vision could be moved forward. A big problem was that this racial consciousness and the ethnocentricity and identity, which was cultivated by the British, this pervaded even after Myanmar's independence. And that's where we've seen a lot of Burmese nationalist sentiments. Um, it was particularly exacerbated in the era of Burmanization, which was a forceful attempt to assimilate all the diverse people of Myanmar to the Bama ethnicity. So this started with Unu, who was the leader of Myanmar from 1948 until 1962. He shifted away from this secularism point of view and declared Buddhism as the national religion forcing almost this religious assimilation where 10% of the population of Myanmar weren't Buddhists. Now, Burmanization continued under General Ne Win, who ruled Myanmar from 1962 to 1988 uh, under the broader ideology of the Burmese way to socialism, under which policies was centered on the Bama ethnic group. Now, it's important to remember that the Bama ethnic group makes about 65% of the 55 million people of Myanmar. So 
That means you still have a third of Myanmar's people who are from other ethnic races. Now, Crystal, can you tell me some of the strategies that the Nguyen government implemented as part of, part of Burmanization? Sure. There is one policy that is a very good illustration of, of these strategies, and that was the 1966 Basic Education Law. Essentially, what this law did was centralize the entire education system throughout the country, abolish the use of English from schools, and mandated the use of Burmese as the sole medium of instruction. Now, this happened despite Myanmar's um, very multilingual diversity, as well as the lack of literacy in Burmese amongst the many ethnic communities. So, in fact, you know, there's a personal anecdote. My dad used to say that he went from one day to learning Shakespeare. He goes back to school next week, and uh, you know, there's not at all any uh, modules in English. And essentially, under this law, curriculums were also revised, including the very important history curricula, which was essentially rewritten to center on Burmese patriotism and deliberately excluded ethnic groups as a way of assimilation. Now, what this effectively did was reduce the importance of ethnic minorities and downplay their respective identities, culture, and languages. Evidently. These policies and attempts of assimilation caused a lot of resistance and division by ethnic minorities. This resistance was in the form of armed conflict between ethnic armed groups and the Tamara, which is the Myanmar government military. There's been such deep fighting in ethnic areas across Myanmar for decades, and this has led to millions of ethnic minorities being displaced as they run and flee from conflict zones. With all the conflict and fighting. And the impact that it's had on livelihoods, there's such a deep-seated level of distrust that has contributed to the challenges in the peace and reconciliation process over the last decade. Peace and reconciliation attempts have started since the end to General Nguyen's government in 1988, and we'll get into that in our next segment as we discuss the peace and reconciliation efforts of the Myanmar government over the last decades. Uh, Minglawa Gune, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Miss Krista, for giving me such an opportunity to discuss in this podcast. I want to express that the discussion here reflects my personal point of views and does not reflect my working organization. Sure, Gune, we understand that completely. So let's dive into some of the questions that we have for you. The first thing I would like to ask is, you know, can you give us a brief overview? Of the NLD government's achievements in the peace process. When the NLD government came into power in early 2016, one of their main priorities was the peace process. They continued the peace process from the previous government, which was the USDP (Union Solidarity and Development Party). The USDP achieved the historic signing of a unilateral ceasefire agreement by eight ethnic armed organizations, known as Nationwide Ceasefire Agreement (NCA). Following from the USDP, the striking achievements of the NLD over the last five years have included holding national-level political dialogue and adopting new peace initiatives beyond 2020. Also, there has been an additional two ethnic armed organizations who have signed the NCA, and there. Being the achievement of the Union Act called Pet One, Two, and Three. Okay, then can you briefly then also explain what the Union Accord is? The Union Act calls 
set up the Princeway and Foundation for a Democratic Federal Union and constitutional reform between the union government and the various ethnic groups who are signatory of the NCA. Thank you for that clarification, Gone. Now, in your personal, uh, in your professional capacity, you have worked with the National Reconciliation and Peace Center in Yangon since 2016 and have been involved in the peace process. Um, in your personal views, what are the challenges? Well, in my opinion, although the current government has gained a lot of successes, uh, there are a lot of challenges faced and need to take care of these problems. For example, some of the non-signatory groups are expecting other ways for peace negotiation instead of NCA, as they think that NCA is not the right way for them, like all inclusive issue. Um, then can you give us some examples? Yes, one of the examples is that uh, the Federal Political Negotiation and Consultative Committee, the FPNCC. The FPNCC is an alliance of seven ethnic organizations they are in close alliance with each other and they hold their stand to discuss as a whole with the government and Tamarol. The FPNCC declined the invitation to attend the Fort Panlong Conference on Peace Negotiation due to concern on inclusiveness. This was because the Myanmar government did not invite the Arakan Army, which was one of the seven members of the FPNCC. The reason that the Myanmar government did not invite the Arakan Army was because they did not recognize the Arakan Army to be an official ethnic organization. Another challenge is on consistency and agreement on the points being negotiated. Each stakeholder in peace negotiation have their own understanding of terminology such as subdetermination, federalizing, and so on. This can really stop the peace process as it may not be clear what is being negotiated. The last challenge I want to share is on capability and capacity. We do have some very capable people in current government peace initiated. For example, in the previous government, the Union Peace Central Committee was headed by the President the Union Peace Working Committee was headed by Special Minister Uaumin, and they had many technical experts recruited from outside Myanmar in key senior position in the peace process. However, the peace process is not an easy, and we need the most capable and passionate people of our country. So moving forward, what does all of this mean for the upcoming 2020 elections? This year, 2020 Myanmar's election has faced a lot of challenges due to the COVID-19 pandemic. On 1st July, the Union Election Commission, UEC, decided to hold the election as decided on 8 November 2020, regardless of the risk. Before July 2020, Myanmar had contained the spread of coronavirus. However, the second wave hit Myanmar badly and cases had been climbing rapidly. We have now more than 50,000 confirmed cases. Right. So how do you see that impacting the elections? Uh, one way it has impacted is through the voting process and election campaigning. Presently, the Gaon Institute of Political Study conducted a study on the election with interesting findings. And what findings uh, did they did they report? One of the findings was that ethnic parties and small political parties were facing constraint in election campaigning due to the COVID-19 impact on physical distancing requirements. They have to change from 
no physical campaign style to going online, not always able to adjust effectively and it affected their ability to campaign for their constituency. Even in some areas like in Rakhine State and Chin State, there are internet lockdown with prevent online campaigning. Also, some could not get enough funds and donations for campaigning due to the impact of COVID-19. Uh, another issue I'd like to point out is the announcement by UEC on 16 October 2020, which concerned the boarding process in some places in Kachin, Kayen, Mon, Chen, Rakhine, and Bako. This caused a lot of controversy and discussion. The UEC apparently did not adequately explain the reason for cancellation with key facts and figures, and they are thinking for a fair and transparent election. But most recently, there is news that they are revoking it in some area. One more issue is that small party and ethnic minority party have difficulty in competing with Britain's town party like Union Solidarity and Development Party and National League for Democracy. Especially for ethnic party, the current winning party and bit party like NLD and USDB has more authority and resources in doing election campaigning during the time of COVID-19. Thank you so much, Kone, for sharing your insights and your and your perspectives. Thank you for having me, sis. Great. Thank you. When the NLD came to power around early 2016, there was a lot of optimism on peace and reconciliation in Myanmar. In this segment of the podcast, I'm here with Miat Myatmon, a master candidate at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, with research expertise in democratic governance and federalism. Matt, can you tell me how the ethnic minorities felt towards the NLD back around the 2015 elections? There was a lot of support from the ethnic minorities for the NLD. Ethnic minorities even voted for the NLD over their own ethnic local parties, you know. There was so much hope and expectation from the people for the NLD to push peace and reconciliation forward. And is there the general feeling that they did push through with peace and reconciliation? Uh, well, I think the feeling is that the progress on the peace process during the LND government in the last five years is not as positive as it should have been. Why do you say that? LND's, uh, I think LND's reconciliation approach and principle are not always aligned with how the ethnic minorities feel on the ground. Uh, look at the uh, Bojot Aung statue cases. During Anadi's uh, time, the, uh, the government started to build uh, the statues of General Aung throughout Myanmar. General Aung the father of Aung San Suu Kyi, who is a state councillor currently, uh, he is also an independent hero along with other independent leaders from different ethnic minorities groups who were assassinated uh, a few months before independence from the British. So building statues in the cities and states where ethnic minorities live, the result is that there's a widespread uh, and popular protest on the uh, statue cases. For the ethnic minorities, uh, general outside statues in their cities is a kind of what has been quoted in some of the news as a modern form of urbanization. Also look at the naming of a bridge in Mon State. Mon State is a state where ethnic Mon are a majority of the population. The parliament made composed of energy majority named the bridge as Bojo Aung San Bridge. 
Although the locals wanted to name the bridge after the name of the river and a town nearby, that also created a huge and popular protest in Mon State. Actually, I feel like I can understand why the local ethnic people can feel angry at this. Like earlier in this podcast,、uh, we do discuss about how history books were rewritten in the education curriculum to be based on the Mama history and its heroes. So when you kind of name a bridge against the will of people, and above all, after a public figure that the local ethnic minorities might not identify with, I can see how this can be viewed as a modern form of Burmanization. You are exactly right, Bernard.、Uh, these kind of approaches from the National League for Democracy government、uh, has led、uh, some issues on trust and respect with the ethnic minorities. This is very much reflected in the 2018 by-election result. Anadis won seven out of 13 seats、uh, in the ethnic minority areas. This means that Anadis lost five out of six seats. The party is also fully aware of the fact that the public perceptions of the party in ethnic areas is、uh, is not positive anymore. The Anadis spokesperson、uh, after the by-election. Even said that I quote here: "Ethnic people are not satisfied with our performance on the peace process." So I would say here, Anadi has lost the most important recipe they need to make progress in peace and reconciliation,、uh, which is trust. Do you think they can regain that trust? This is kind of a tricky question, Banar. But if I were put in one sentence, I would say. It would be really hard and challenging.、Uh, in worst case scenario, the level of trust would never be the same as back in 2015. There's little doubt that Anadi will win the 2020 general election next week on November 8. In their next term, also they will need to be much more sensitive to the feelings of the ethnic minorities of Myanmar, and they need to show that they are committed. And this will depend. On the former political arrangement, the NLD will take after the election. It's also very likely that NLD will win a majority at the union level. But look, Bernard, will NLD allowed ethnic parties to take control of the position of chief minister and speaker of the state and region parliament? How will the significant national bodies will be composed of, such as human rights commission, Supreme Court justices? Union Elections Commission, Constitution Tribunal, in these in these important national bodies, where there be more diverse participation of ethnic minorities. So the first six months or a year after the election is very important for the NLD. Their decisions on the composition of inclusive and diverse national bodies, and proper autonomy in the states and region, and meaningful engagement. With the ethnic political parties, where Josh, whether Anadi, where we gain trust, they have lost in the last five years. Thank you very much for joining us today, Matt. Ah,、uh, thanks for having me, Benat. So that's all for this episode on the Myanmar elections briefing. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a thumbs up or a rating on whatever platform you listen to, and do share this episode around. We'll catch you next week on Election Day on the eighth of November, twenty twenty.